Over the last several weeks, we've been going through a series entitled Training Day, and we're finishing up over the next two weeks, and we're really talking about one topic. We're just dividing it up to two different messages, and we're talking about training a nation today. So if you've got your Bibles, open up to 2 Chronicles. You probably know this passage. You've probably heard it preached before, 2 Chronicles 7.14. But we're going to talk about what we as a church need to be doing in order to train up the nation. And as I said in my prayer, judgment begins in the house of God. If we want to see the nation changed, it begins with us. Begins right here. Now, a lot of people, when they look at this passage, they'll say, well, that was a passage that was for Israel. And I would agree with that. But I think if you look at the phraseology at the very beginning of the verse, you'll also see that it is for Christians as well. When it simply says this, if my people, which are called by my name. Now, I'd agree with you that's about Israel. I would agree with that because the name Israel means one who wrestles with God and man. It was a name that God himself gave to Jacob who would become the nation of Israel through his 12 tribes. God spoke directly to him. God gave him great promises. In the book of Exodus chapter 19, God tells Israel that they are his own special chosen people. I have no problem. I don't disagree with that at all. In fact, in 2 Samuel, it is again spoken to David that God has called them out, that God has chosen them as a nation to be those who are after God's own heart. So God has called the people of Israel. We know that they are God's special chosen people. But it says, if my people, I can tell you this, Israel is not the only people that serve God. There are Christians If my people were called by my name, you say, well, how do you know that? Well, think about that. Are we not called by his name by being called Christians? In Antioch, Acts chapter 11 was the first time that believers were called Christians. It means to be a little Christ, a Christ follower, or if you so choose to, Christ Jr., That's what it means. When you call yourself a Christian, you're telling the world they can look at you because they'll see Christ in you. That they're no longer going to see you. They're going to see what Christ died for. They're going to see the Christian example in all things that we do. We understand this because in 1 Peter chapter 2, Paul Peter speaks to the people and he says, You are a called nation. A special people, a holy priesthood. He's speaking to those that have been dispersed, that are abroad. He's talking to those that are following Christ. We are a called, chosen people as well. We didn't take the place of Israel. We are an addition to the people of Israel. When you think about that, we are the people who are called by his name. Now, here's the thing. You say, well, wait a minute. You want to talk about training up a nation, but if we're just talking about Christians, how are we going to train up a nation if God wants to get a hold of church first? Well, I think there's a passage that Jesus spoke about this in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45 when he says this, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Here's the thing. As God blesses his children in the country, he'll bless the country. Just as the rain not only falls on your house, it'll fall on your neighbor's house, right? Just as God blesses you, he blesses those that are around you. And so as a church, we can influence our 
city, which influences our state, which influences our country. We can eventually change the nation as God begins to move in his house. So if my people who are called by my name. Just ask you one question this morning to start off. Are you one of his people? Are you a Christian? Are you one who claims it only in word or are you one who lives it in deed? Are you one that magnifies the name of Jesus in all things that you do? Or are you one that cowers to the community and to the country so that they don't see Jesus in you? Are you unashamed to be called a Christian? Are you unashamed to live the Christ-like example before all people? Are you one of His? If you are, then God is going to speak to you today. If you're not, God is going to speak to you also. So listen to this today. We're going to look at four things that we must do as a nation it says, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves. The first thing we have to do is humble ourselves. Now, here's the thing. You'll hear people make comments all the time. Humility is one of those things that is very, very difficult. Humility is a matter of understanding who we really are. Let's just get right down to it. I'll just use myself as an example. I'm a sinner. I'm fallen. I'm messed up. I make mistakes daily. How about you? The truth of the matter is, is humility understands who we are in relation to God. Humility understands our need for God. There's two things that what it means when it talks about humble ourselves. The first thing is humility is a sign of repentance. It's a sign of repentance. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, several passages in 2 Chronicles teach this. 2 Chronicles 12 and verse 7. And when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah saying, they have humbled themselves, therefore I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some deliverance, and my wrath shall not be poured out upon Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. 2 Chronicles chapter 32 and verse 26. Notwithstanding, Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord came not upon them in the days of Hezekiah. 2 Chronicles 34 and verse 27. Because thine heart was tender, and thou didst humble thyself before God, when thou heardest his words against this place, and against the inhabitants thereof, and humblest thyself before me, and didst rend thy clothes, and Weep before me, I have even heard thee also, saith the Lord. Humility. In other words, when God speaks and God tells us what we've done wrong, we humble ourselves before him. Let's be honest. If somebody from church came to you today and pointed out a sin in your life, would you be angry with the person who pointed out your sin? Or would you be angry with yourself because you are a sinner? Most of us would say, well, I don't want anybody pointing out my sin. That's not humility. Humility is recognizing, guess what? Here's the truth. We're all sinful, and we all fall short, and we all need to repent. To be honest with you, every week at church, our altar should be full. Not because of something that I preach, but because of our hearts crying out to God to make things right. We ought to be rending ourselves before God in signs of repentance because we desire to see God move. You may say, well, I didn't do anything this week. Now you lied. Come on down. (laughs) Good try. You might have fooled yourself, but you didn't fool God. 
The truth of the matter is, is humility is a symbol of repentance. It's recognizing that we have fallen short, that we have failed, and that we've got to make things right with God. One of the biggest things that we have a hindrance, and the reason why the altar is one of the most unused items within the church, is because we lack humility. We're more concerned about what man thinks of us in the sanctuary. If we go down front and somebody sees me go down front, they'll think I'm a godless sinner. (laughs) Well, they wouldn't be wrong. You know, they'll think that you messed up. They'll know that you failed. Here's the truth of the matter. If they're worried about you, they need to come on down too. We've got to humble ourselves where we're more concerned about what God thinks than what we think and what man thinks. But the second thing about humility is it's a sign of dependence. It's a sign of dependence. Let me, let me just put this out there for you just a second. How many of you are breathing today? Those of you that are asleep, don't raise your hands. That's good. Thank you. You're keeping me humble. Thank you. Will you think about that? If you're breathing today, you are dependent upon God. Because he gives you every breath that you have. If you read the book of Job, Job says, God, if you were to take the breath away from me. If you're breathing today, you are dependent upon God. He gives you every breath that you breathe. God gave you the ability to be here. He gave you the ability to walk in. He gave you the jobs that bought you the car so that you could drive in today. God gave you the help that you have so you could be here today to worship him. God gives us everything. Humility is understanding our dependence on God that we are worthless and useless without God. Now, you say, wait a minute, I don't like the way you're talking to me this morning. Okay, that's fine. I understand. But I need you to understand this. In 1 Corinthians, where Paul is speaking to the people, he said, God didn't call the wise, but he called the foolish. I'll be the first to say I'm a fool for Christ. God didn't call the rich, but he called the base. I'll be the base. I'll be the lowest of the low. God didn't call those who others would think were worthy. He called the unworthy. That's fine. I'm unworthy. Throw me in that category, Lord. I know my dependence is dependent upon you. I can't do anything without God. And the Bible tells us that he, uh, Paul uses a uh, philosopher when he says, In him we live and move and, be, and have our being. Even the world knows that without God they can't even exist. We have a sign of dependence, and that dependence is upon Him. There's several signs that come with humility, and in a lot of ways we don't use them today, but they use these signs numerous times when revival was stoked in the times of the Bible. One of those was fasting. Fasting was a going without food. We see it in the time of Jonah. During the time of Jonah, when revival began to break out, the king fasted and he decreed across the land that they should fast. In fact, they muzzled the ox so that they wouldn't eat. They didn't even want the animals eating because they wanted to show that they needed God. The idea of fasting is to recognize within our hearts and lives that we don't live by physical food, but we breathe and live by the very words of God. We need God's word, his spiritual food, his spiritual nourishment more than we need physical nourishment. They would fast. Why? Because here's the truth of the matter. Everything that we have comes from the Lord. Every blessing that we have comes from the Lord. God gives us that food. And we foregoing it shows that we are humble before him. 
This was used numerous times even in the time of Nehemiah. When Nehemiah had called the people back to worship the Lord, they fasted before him and revival began. During the time of Jonah, we already looked at, they fasted and God brought about a great revival. During the time of Esther, when the nation was in great trouble, they fasted so that God would give them an answer. If you want to know more about fasting, read Isaiah chapter 58. It shows us that the purpose of fasting is to put our reliance and dependence and faith and trust in God. It is saying, God, we need you more than anything this world has to offer, and we are understanding our dependence on you, and therefore we don't need food as much as we need you. They fasted. Number two, they put on sackcloth. Now, sackcloth, it's like a burlap sack. I'm going to tell you, I've never, have you ever worn some clothes that were just kind of itchy? You know what I'm talking about, where you sat there and you and now that I've done that, several of y'all are going to start doing that now. You, something itches. Sackcloth was a coarse material. It was something that, that not most people wore. In fact, it was a sign of low humility. It was, they would even dress the part to show their humbleness before God. Because here's the truth. Can I just tell you something? God isn't impressed with your suit. You ever thought about that? God's not impressed with your suit. God's not impressed with the way you dress. I'm going to tell you, man, how many of you grew up with Easter? You know, you know what I'm talking about? Easter and the ladies would come in in the big old hats. And the bigger the hat, the better the hat. In fact, some churches even went so far during Easter that they would have a contest to see who had the best hat in the church. Those hats were the most distracting thing in the world and you think about it Paul obviously had to deal with something like that because he said look watch the way you dress so that you don't take away the vision from God and put it on yourself the idea of wearing sackcloth is to say God we will humble ourselves in even our physical appearance we will we will weep before you we will show signs in everything that we do they did it during the time of Jonah and they did it during the time of Nehemiah and they also did it during the time of Esther but there was also something that went along with wearing sackcloth they would sit in ashes have you ever wondered what that meant, sitting in ashes? I, I, I looked over it several times. It means to be in desolation and ruin. They did it during the time of Jonah and Nineveh. They also did it during the time of Esther. Why did they sit in ashes and show desolation and ruin? What they basically were saying is, is God, if you don't show up, we're done. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine if the church believed that? God, if you don't show up, we're done. I just wonder how many times you've been to church and God didn't show up. I'll be honest with you. I've been in many a church service where God didn't show up. And the bad thing is, is when you walk out, all you can think about is where you're going to lunch. Man, if God shows up, here's the truth of the matter. If God shows up, you don't want to leave. Because I'm going to tell you, when your best friend that you had not seen in a while shows up at your house, you'll gab all night. If God shows up at his house in the midst of worship, you don't want to leave because you want to talk with him. You want to spend time with him. You want him to show up. When they sat in ashes, they were saying, God, we are ruined without you. We are desolate without you. We are done without you. We have no purpose in living if you don't show up. Imagine if you live that way. God, if you don't show up, there's no point in me even living. And then they would throw dust on their heads. This happened during the time of Job and during the time of Nehemiah. 
Could you imagine if we started throwing dust on our heads? We'd think you went back to your childhood making mud pies, wouldn't we? They throw dust on their heads. And you know what that was? That's a symbol of we came from dust and to dust we shall return. It's a sign of humility because what we're basically saying to God is we know where we came from. We know where we're going. And without you, we would just remain dust. Think about that. When God created man, he bent down. All the other things he created, he spoke. Sun, there it was. Moon, there it was. God spoke the stars into existence. There they were. God spoke land into existence and mountains and ravines and trees and birds and four-footed animals. He spoke all those things into existence. But when it came time to create man, he stooped down to the ground and he gathered up the dirt and he formed man out of that dirt and then he breathed life into it. Just remember this. You came from dirt. From dust you came to dust you shall return. That is how we should be humble. I don't care what you do in this life. I don't care how big you get. I don't care how big your name is. I don't care if you hit the billboard charts. I don't care what you do in life. I don't care if you invent the, th- uh, the cure for cancer. I don't care if you do any of that stuff. Let me tell you something. You can move up the charts in the world. It doesn't make you move up the charts of God. Humility does. Because those who are first will be last. Those who are last will be first. God is waiting for the church to become humble and recognize its absolute need for him. Let us humble ourselves. Number two, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray. Leonard Ravenhill says this, the ugly fact is that altar fires are either out or burning very low. The prayer meeting is dead or dying. By our attitude to prayer, we tell God that what was begun in the spirit, we can finish in the flesh. Surely revival delays because prayer decays. Nothing do Satan and hell fear more than praying men. As the first atom bomb shook Hiroshima, so prayer alone can release that power which would shake the hearts of men. Boy, we need more prayer in church. It's always funny to me. One Wednesday night at our church that we were at in North Carolina, a lady walked out and she made this statement, and I'll never, ever, ever forget it. She said, Y'all pray too much. All I could think to myself is, Honey, you ain't never been to a two, three, four hour prayer meeting, have you? Where God shook the place so hard. You just wanted to keep praying because you wanted God to keep pouring out over you. If you think 20 to 30 minutes of prayer is too long, then you are dead spiritually. You are dead spiritually. You say, well, why would you say such a thing? Because let me tell you something. God said this is not going to be a house of worship. He didn't say this was going to be a house of his word. He said this is a house of prayer. God's house is a house of prayer. That's what God desires. Why? Because it shows our dependence on God. One of my favorite moments to have in this church is every Sunday morning at 8 o'clock. You say, what are you doing at 8 o'clock? I'm up there in a conference room with about 12 to 14 men. And we're praying for God to move every morning. We're praying for God to move in this service. Why? Because we are desperate 
desperate to see God move. So desperate, we know that only God can do it, that we can't. It doesn't come by the wise words of man, but it comes by the power and the Spirit of God. The reason why we're baptizing so many, the reason why we're seeing so many saved, the reason why God is moving in this church, I believe, is attributed to prayer. Why? It's not attributed to my preaching. It's not attributed to the worship. It's not attributed to the choir. It's not attributed to our Sunday school classrooms. It's not attributed to anything that's going on in this church except prayer. Why? Because God is moving. We've got to understand the importance of prayer. If my people are called by myself, will humble themselves and pray. We need to understand two things about prayer. Number one, it ushers us into God's presence. Listen to Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you realize that prayer is an ushering in to the presence of of God. What if God showed up today? Could you imagine if God just all of a sudden showed up in church today? Let me tell you the two reactions of what would take place. You ready? Number one, you'd either fall on your face before God and start repenting because you realize you don't need to be in his presence at this moment because there's sin in your life that you got to repent of. Or you'd run out the door because you don't want to get rid of your sin. That's what's going to happen. In fact, that's what the people of Israel did when God's cloud came and filled up the house, the temple of God. They ran out. They ran out because they couldn't stand to be in the presence of God. If God showed up, let me tell you something. Every heart would be cleansed. Every soul would be touched. Every life would be changed. Prayer enters us into the presence of God. And let me tell you something. If you don't experience the presence of God in the church house, then you ain't praying. I love it when people say they leave the church and they go, well, I wasn't being fed. Well, let me just tell you something. I ain't going to spoon feed you. Here's the truth of the matter. The plate's been set. The food's right there. If you don't bring it to your mouth, woe be unto you. The problem is, is I can only bring the horse to the water. I can't make him drink it. The truth of the matter is, if you ain't being fed, it's probably because you ain't praying. It's probably because you ain't listening. It's probably because you ain't right with God. Because the truth of the matter is, is the words being preached, whether you listen or not. The truth is, if you get out of here and you say, well, I didn't feel anything today. The problem is you got dead feelings. That's the problem. You say, well, brother, how can you preach so strong like that? Well, it's very simple. Because when God's word goes out, it's not going to come back void. Because it's going to hit the people that are spiritual, that are enlivened, that are ready to hear, that are ready to move. Those that have been prayed up, those that are ready to be fed, those that are hungry. It's going to hit them. It's going to move them. And if you leave out of here dead, it's your own fault. Plain and simple. Man, it enters into the presence of God. Man, if God showed up, man, I, I look forward to the day. I want to see God show up one day. I'm telling you, I'm ready for him to just knock me out of the way. I love Toby Mac's song, Steal My Show. God, go ahead. There it is. It's yours. Just get me out of the way. 
I don't want to be in the way. I want to sit down. I'll let him preach and take over because I'm here to tell you I'm ready to see God show up. His presence is ready to enter the house. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's not knocking at your heart. He's knocking at the back doors of the church waiting for somebody to let him in. And he says, if you let him in, he'll come and he'll dine and he'll sup with you. See, that's why prayer is so important. Here's the truth of the matter. It's not that we pray too much. It's that we don't pray enough. We don't pray enough. I believe if we spent more time in prayer, we'd see God do even more than what he's already doing. I really believe it. You say, well, brother, do you think that we have to come to church here at 8 o'clock every Sunday morning and pray? Well, we'd love to have you. But let me tell you something. You need to be praying while you're at home. You need to be praying every moment of all the day. The truth of the matter is the Bible tells us to pray without ceasing. You say, well, how can somebody pray without ceasing? It's real simple. You're always in an attitude of prayer. You're always ready to enter into the throne room. You're always ready to speak to God Almighty because he's always listening. Man, if we just pray more, we might see God show up. But it also grants us holy boldness. Acts chapter 4. I I love this. In Acts chapter 4 verse 29. The apostles have been persecuted greatly. And in verse 29 it says. And now Lord behold their threatenings. And grant unto thy servants that with all boldness. That they may speak thy word. By stretching forth thine hand to heal. And that signs and wonders may be done. By the name of the holy child Jesus. And when they had prayed. The place was shaken. Where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they spake the word of God with boldness. Man I'm ready for God to shake the house. I'm ready for the wind to just blow through here with his Holy Spirit and shake this place. I'm here to tell you, God still, let me tell you something. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If he did it back then, he can still do it today. The problem is if we keep thinking that the God of the Bible isn't the God that we see today, it's because the people of God aren't the same people of God they were back then. We're not in expectation. We're not longing. We're not lingering. We're not looking. That's the problem. It's not God. It's us. We've got to pray. We want to see God show up with great boldness. And I love it because when they were persecuted in Acts chapter 5 verse 29, then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be prince and savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so also the Holy Ghost whom God hath given to them that obey him. In other words, let me tell you something. You can bring all all kinds of persecutions, all kinds of tribulations, all kinds of difficulties. We're not going to stop speaking out for God. Man, they asked for boldness. They got it. They were beaten. They were hurt. Paul was stoned. So many of them went through so much stuff. And they were willing to go through it because they believed that God was going to show up. And so they prayed. Number three. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face. What does it mean to seek God's face? Well, number one, it means you want to see it. Let me tell you something. When I did something wrong, I, never, I didn't want to run into my parents. Did you? <laughs> if I did something wrong, I didn't want to see my parents. I didn't want to get that scalding look, right, that they gave sometimes. That look, it's the same look I try to give my kids that they laugh at now. Anybody else have that problem? But to seek God's face means we want to be in his presence. Psalm chapter 24, verses 3 to 6 says this. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. 
who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob. Selah. In other words, they want to remove obstructions. They want to remove obstructions from their view of God. I mean, if you've ever been to a concert or a movie, anybody ever? <laughs> it's not a sin. It's okay. <laughs> You're know, like, I'm not telling on myself. <laughs> it's not a sin. It's okay. Yeah, concert or yeah, maybe you've been in church and you've had your view obstructed, right? You're looking and all of a sudden somebody kind of slides in front of you. What do you do? You don't sit there and go, oh, good. Finally, somebody slid in front of me. I can take a nap now and they won't see me, right? No. What you do is you kind of move around. You want to get out of the obstructed view. You want to be able to see. So you'll move. You'll adjust. I've, I've been in places where I crane my neck this way and crane my neck this way. And you do all kinds of things because you don't want your view obstructed. Nobody buys a seat at a concert behind a pillar. They don't put them there for a reason. Nobody wants an obstructed view. Why in the world would we want anything to obstruct our view from God? And that's what sin does. Sin will obstruct our view from God. And what the psalmist is saying is if you want to be in the presence of God, get it all out. Get rid of it. Don't allow obstacles to obstruct your view. But also we need to learn to turn back. I love the story of the prodigal son. Let me just tell you something. There are a lot of prodigals in church today and maybe you're one of them I don't know but it says the prodigal son was sitting there one day after he had fed the pigs and he just sits there and he thinks to himself man my father's servants are in better shape than I am man if I just if I'll just go back and tell my dad that that I'll be a hired servant then I can actually eat instead of trying to eat these pods of the corn and it says he got up you see, the prodigal son did the first right thing. Once you realize you got to get up, you get up. Instead of sitting there wallowing in the woe is me and thinking everything's wrong, you got to turn back. And the first step is acknowledging where you're at, acknowledging you're in the pig pen, acknowledging that you're in sin, that you've allowed this sin to keep you from God. The truth of the matter is a lot of people aren't. Here's the thing. A lot of Christians worry about their salvation. You want to know why they worry about their salvation? They worry about their salvation because they're actually living in sin. And instead of repenting and getting things right, they want to keep living in it. They want God to be okay with it. And then they wonder why their relationship isn't going anywhere. Because you're still stuck in the pig pen. You're still sitting in the mud and you hadn't even got up yet. But the first step is to get up. The second step is to turn around. The word repent means to turn around. It means to go in a different direction. It means to stop going in the direction you were going in. And so the idea is to get up and turn around, to turn back to God. The truth of the matter is, is God's ready for that. In Revelation 2, the very first church, the church of Ephesus that God spoke to, he said, you've lost your first love. He says, go back to doing the things you did at first. You want to know how to get back? Go back to what you were doing. Go back to the time where you were living for God. Go back to the time when you were doing what God wanted you to do. Go back to the time where you had greatest of joy. Don't keep sitting in the pig pen, but go back. To seek his face, we need to remove obstructions. We need to turn back, and we need to search desperately. Desperately. Jeremiah 29, 13 says this, And you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. Let me tell you something. God's not playing hide and go seek. He's not trying to stay out of your view. He's not the one that's obstructed your view. 
He's not the one that's hiding from you. God is right there. The problem is, is you're blinded and you've got to remove the blinders so that you can see that he's right there. You've got to search for him with all your heart. I love Psalm 63. It says, as a dry and weary land thirsteth for water, so my soul thirsteth after you. Man, how thirsty are you for God? Well, when you're thirsty for God, you'll search for him with all your heart. Lastly, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Richard Orrin Roberts says, Repentance makes the path straight between the Lord and the repenting person. Repentance is like clearing a highway of holiness to and from God. Without repentance, no one can make their way to the Lord. For there are too many ups and downs, ins and outs, and divisive ways in the unrepentant heart. Five ways we need to turn from our wicked ways. I'll be quick. Number one, forsake our ways. Isaiah 55, verse 6 and 7 says this, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord. Forsake our ways. In other words, when you forsake something, it means you turn back and you don't go back. That's one of the greatest problems as Christians that we have is that we'll fall into sin and we'll say we repent and yet we keep going back and back and back and back and back. Let me just go ahead and say this. You're not repentant. You're lying. And God knows it. You say, but I'm really broken over my sin. If you are broken over your sin, you'll forsake it. You'll walk away from it. You won't keep returning to it. You won't be like a dog that keeps finding a mud hole. You'll be one that walks away and stays away. You will forsake those ways. You don't want it anymore. Number two, you won't defend your ways. You won't defend them. When Saul had been caught in a sin, he was supposed to go and destroy the people of Amalek. And it says he was supposed to destroy them completely, and he was supposed to kill all the animals and everything. They were supposed to be completely obliterated. Well, when Samuel comes into town, he says, what's this bleeding of sheep I hear? And he begins to defend his way. He says, oh, we brought those because we're going to sacrifice them to the Lord. And Samuel goes, obedience is better than sacrifice. Don't defend your sin to God because he's not going to take it. He's not going to agree with it. We need to stop defending it. Number three, we need to flee. I love it when Joseph was caught by Potiphar's wife. says he took his jacket off and he ran. He fled. In other words, in the book of Proverbs, it talks about this. It talks about the guy that ends up by the adulteress's house. He says... Instead of walking by the house, walk around the block so that you don't even get near the house. If you can flee from sin, keep it far from you. If you got a problem with pornography, throw away your computer. Put a filter on there or let your wife check your computer again and again and again. If you got a problem with your phone, give your wife complete access to your phone, men. Wives, give your husbands complete access to your phones. Why should you be afraid? Well, it's mine and it's private. If it's private, you got something you're doing you ain't supposed to be doing. My wife can look at my phone anytime she wants. She can look at my computer anytime she wants. You want to know why? Because we're one. So when it's private, it's private between us, not just me. We got to get our relationships right, folks. I'm here to tell you. If you're afraid, you're, you're sitting there right now. You might be chewing on your nails going, whoa. I don't like where you're going with this. That's okay. I don't like where you've been going. So hopefully you'll get right. 
1 Samuel 7, 3 teaches us that we got to return with all our heart. With all our heart. In other words, to turn from your wicked ways doesn't mean, well, God, I'm going to give you 99% of me, but I got that 1% of the world I'm still holding on to. I still got to have a little fun. I still want to, I still want to do. I mean, if you think being a Christian is a drag, something's wrong with you. We're not boring people. We just don't need alcohol or drugs to have fun because we actually want to remember it the next day. We don't need that stuff. Why? Because we got the power of the Holy Ghost who is much greater than any of that stuff. The truth of the matter is, is there's more joy in living the Christian life than there is in living in the world because we know where we're going when we leave this place. But we got to give him it all, all our hearts. And finally, to turn from our wicked ways, we need to be genuine. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11 shows genuine repentance. And I'm just going to read it. Simply says this, For behold, this same self thing, that you sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge in all things. You've approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. When was the last time you cried over your sin? When was the last time you lay broken before God over your sin? When was the last time you poured out your heart to God over your sin and just said, you know what, God, you've got to remove it because I can't do it. I need you to cleanse me, to take this away from me, and then walk away from it. Richard Owen Roberts said this, Repentance is not something that is accomplished in a moment of time. Listen to this. Repentance is not something that is accomplished In a moment of time, it cannot be described as once done, forever accomplished. True repentance is not a single act, but a continual attitude. Yes, you can come and lay it at the altar. But every day you've got to get up and battle so that you don't fall back into it. Turn from your wicked ways. We've talked about what our part is. To train up a nation. And here's the thing. God wants to start right here. And I don't know where you're at. But the question is. Are you doing your part? Now here's the thing. It's not a matter of whether Hillcrest is doing their part. Because Hillcrest is made up of each individual person sitting in here. We are the church. Not the building. And it's as we. One on one. Individual. Get things right with God. And we prepare ourselves. We humble ourselves. We pray. We seek his face. And we turn from our wicked ways. That's when God is going to show up. So are you doing your part? I'm going to end with this last quote. Give me revival. In my soul. And in my church. And in my nation. Or give me death. Death.